we lived on the floor for years because we, we couldn't afford a bed. You know, we just gave up everything to pursue this, what we thought was important, you know, because it it's always been in our hearts to make the land, make, make a relationship with the land. And uh, to, to really do that and pour your heart and soul into it, a lot of times you got to give up material good. You are now tuning in to the Roughnecks Podcast with your host, Cole Nixon. Much love. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Roughnecks Podcast. We are back with our first guest episode of the year. If you haven't, yet be sure to go and check out the first episode of the year episode 215 which is called the all-new roughnecks roundtable where dante reno and i sit down behind the microphones and chat for about an hour hour and a half and uh but joining me today is a very special episode that i'm excited to get into but without further ado glenn welcome to the roughnecks podcast oh it's great to be here cole yeah, so you are the head rancher or CEO, if you rather. There's a lot of different titles you can call it of Alder Spring Ranch out in Idaho, correct? That's that's right. Yeah, I, I kind of don't really gravitate to the CEO um, moniker very well. Um, but I don't know. I've been called a lot of things, and some of them not so good. But um, I, I guess uh, my kids just call me the head guy. I'm the head guy. So. <laughs> But just to kind of kick the episode off, I like to allow the guests to give a background on themselves just to kind of fill it in because I could never do it justice. So kind of sure. tell the Roughnecks listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay, so um, let's see. I'm uh, in my 60s now, so um, and that's uh, an actually interesting place to be. I've been pretty much outdoors, um, active all my life. Um, Started with a forestry degree, uh, University of Maine. Ended up getting a uh, a permanent position as a full time forester in the mountains around me here in central Idaho. Idaho, uh, we like to think that we have people believing that uh, Idaho is just a big potato field, but um, actually it's home to some of the most rugged country in uh, in the United States outside of Alaska. It's got the largest wilderness area. Um, in the United States, outside of Alaska, and we live just outside of it. I can see it from here. Um, it's an area that, uh, like where we run our cattle up on the wild ranges of the mountains, um, about a 70 square mile piece of country. And just in five miles past our boundary up there, um, the wilderness starts and it's about 110 miles before you run across another human habitation or settlement of any kind. And it's just rugged wilderness across the whole central part of the state. And we're kind of right on the edge of the central Idaho mountains. It's just virtually untracked, uh, completely unpeopled. Um, and so we live right on the edge of that. And it's kind of unique um, out of America because uh you know, we have very intact wildlife and uh, plant populations. We have, uh, just looking outside my window right here, I can see peaks that reach up to 11,000 feet uh, that are, they go above Timberline or Alpine Tundra up there, a lot of Alpine lakes, and they go all the way down to the valley here where we live at 4,800 feet, where we live in um, kind of high desert uh, because of the rain shadow, because we're surrounded by these mountains. So anyway, <laughs> When I came out of Maine and uh, picked a job here as a district forester, um, 
for the Bureau of Land Management, which is a Department of Interior agency, um, it kind of just blew me away because I was now handed um, the, basically the keys to about 1.3 million acres of forest land. And, uh, you know, it was just an incredible, incredible opportunity for a kid from, um, you know, back east, um, going to school in Maine. And Maine was cool, but this was cooler because it was just so wide open and wild. And, um, and it was a fantastic job. Uh, my wife, actually, Carol, got a job in the same district, uh, and we worked together there. She's a full-time plant, plant ecologist, botanist. She's got a PhD in plant ecology, and she and I were kind of a natural pairing because we were both plant and wild country geeks. Anyway, we, we're here working those agency jobs. I was a forester in charge of about, oh, eight or nine people, and we we're managing timber across a vast swatch of um, Idaho. What, what you got to know about Idaho, like our county is the size of Connecticut and um, it has about 6,000 people in it. And uh, of that area, the size of Connecticut, 96% of it is public land. Uh, there's only 4% of our county that's actually privately owned. The rest is all your land. Coal and you know everybody in America, it's their land. It's open country. Uh, you can camp anywhere. You can go anywhere if you can get there. Uh, a lot of it, you know, you'll have to be horseback or you'll have to be hiking uh, because it's just extremely wild country that's braided with everything from wild rivers to um, you know snow-capped peaks. So um, anyway, <laughs> we fell in love with the country living here, but. We both had this agricultural background. We were both brought up on farms and ranches, uh, working those jobs, you know, getting us through college. And uh, we, we kind of wanted to get back to our roots. So we bought a small ranch just in the next valley over the mountain range behind me here. And um, it was only uh, about 60 irrigated acres. And we bought seven cows, and <laughs> that was the beginning of Alder Spring. And uh, we just had a little bit of money in our pocket from working those jobs. And, uh, and now we, uh, we've expanded the ranch. We bought another place here in this valley. Uh, and now we ranch on a total of 70 square miles or 50,000 acres. And we run right around... Um, oh, I think it's around 700 head of cattle. And uh, so it's been 30 years now doing that. Um, and we're successful. We're profitable. We found a way to be profitable in agriculture. As you probably figured out, Cole, you know, in the Midwest, I have a lot of friends in the Midwest. And agriculture is a tough nut to crack as far as uh, being profitable. Um, it's very, um, it can be really gloom and doom. You know, if you talk to a lot of farmers and ranchers, um, and a lot of them don't say there's hope for their kids. Um, you know, we do, and we've um, tried to come up with ways that our kids, that we can expand our operation further. So our kids, uh, we have seven daughters over that time, and uh, the, a lot of them are interested in ranching and going on. So um, it's really exciting for us because, you know, we're 60s and it's we're thinking transition and uh, our kids are all in their 20s and uh, they're thinking transition, too. So that's really cool because I can say, yes, uh, ranching is 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 a good profession. 
it's a good thing to do. It's profitable. Um, but it took about 30 years for us to really kind of figure that out and what that looked like. So <clears throat> beginning at the beginning, when you guys bought that, you know, that with the first seven cows and everything, was this always kind of something that you had, like this was the end, like the goal in mind, or was it just kind of more of a see, we'll see what happens with it. It was totally, we'll see what happens. You know, I never really, you know, a lot of people will say to me, um, boy, you're living your dream. And, um, you know, <laughs> sometimes I'm living my nightmare, uh, but it, you know, Cole, it's kind of a funny deal because, you know, I, I, in fact, I was talking to my wife this morning, you know, I'm looking out the window and we got this beautiful view of these huge mountains all around us. And, you know, there's most of our windows are a house. Uh, you can see like from our bedroom, you can see 40 miles. And, um, if you look through the east window, you can't see anything uh, as far as human habitation. And you could see 60 miles, you know. And um, and I said to her, you know what? This isn't my dream. I don't really have one. You know, it, it's just this is what we do. And we love what we do. Don't get me wrong. And we're pat super passionate about what we do. But, you know, I feel like if... Um, I felt like I was supposed to do something different. Well, I would just go do that, you know. Um, so it's it's really, you know, it's really our identity in terms of what we feel like we've been asked to do. You know, for now, we've been asked to take care of this particular piece of land, this particular ranch, that 70 square miles of wild country. That's what we've been asked to care for. And until I hear different, um, or feel different, I'll keep doing this. And, you know, because it's it's not easy, Cole. I mean, shoot, it's been just an incredible amount of work. Um, you know, and, and there was a lot of sacrifice. It just, you know, ask my wife about how much sacrifice there was. You know, we live in the middle of nowhere. You know, we've given up friendships. Um, you, you give up a lot of social interaction. Um, and, you know, you give up a lot of you know, material goods or, you know, um, you know, kind of a soft, soft life that a lot of our friends in more urban environments live, you know, they, they live in this very sterile environment of, yeah, that's a nice lawn. They have nice sidewalks. They have a very nice, perfectly done house. Um, you know, all their lights work. Uh, they have beds for everybody. Uh, we lived on the floor for years because we, we can afford a bed. You know, we just gave up everything to pursue this, what we thought was important, you know, because it, it's always been in our hearts to make the land, make, make a relationship with the land and uh, to, to really do that and pour your heart and soul into it. A lot of times you got to give up material goods. And so um, that's why I say sometimes it's a nightmare. I mean, some people say, wow, you're living in this beautiful place. It's such a beautiful dream. And it's not a dream. It's just the reality that we're in right now. So you actually, you guys actually do something that's a little bit different than most ranches, like cattle, like in terms of selling beef and everything, because yeah. you guys are grass fed only, correct? Yeah, hundred percent grass fed. Yep. So, how common is that today? Because I'm and I'm sure you do do get a lot of backlash probably on like social media and that kind of stuff from <laughs> vegans and those type of things. But like how yeah. how um how is yours ex exactly different than like you know your st normal store bought meat? 
So it's grass-fed, and it's 100% grass-fed, and a lot of people say, oh, well, aren't all cattle grass-fed? And they're right. For the most part, cattle are largely grass-fed, but um, the difference is this. About 97% of the cattle in the United States that enter the food supply are finished in a feedlot, and a feedlot is a series of concrete bunkers that then you put um, concentrate in, we call it, and concentrate could be ground corn, it could be flake corn, it could be dry distillers grains, which is a byproduct of ethanol production. Uh, could be soybeans, could be crazy stuff, Cole. Um, I know I know of uh, feeders that feed, feed Skittles and bakery waste and newspapers and ground up chicken crap and ground up chickens. And uh, <laughs> one time I, I used to work uh, seasonal in Indiana during the corn harvest and uh, and it, fantastic people, Cole, don't get me wrong, but a whole different paradigm than what we're in. And uh, and anyway, I was down at the grain elevator down there in Indiana, and uh, I, my job was hauling corn. I'd haul load after load after load of corn off the fields, off the combines, and I'd take the corn to the elevator and drop it off there. And, you know, we'd dump it, and it would auger up into these huge grain bins. Um, that you see dotted all through the Midwest today, you know, and then it would hit the rail, you know, hit the rail cars or hit what would hit semis. And one time I was talking to Max, he became a friend of mine. He was the guy who uh, he was one of the owners. And I said, Max, where's all this corn going? And uh, he said, well, it goes to either uh, dairies feedlots or um it goes to hog operations and you know these are all confinement operations um basically feedlots you know the hogs are in houses and so i said well um you know that's the energy because corn has a lot of energy a lot of a lot of carbohydrates you know i said so max where where's the protein come from and he said oh for which animal i said well the pigs i said oh the pigs well we feed them ground up cows I said, whoa, ground up cows. He said, yeah, you know, blood meal, bone meal, that's what they call it, but it's basically ground up cows, you know. And uh, I said, so what do the cows do for protein? He said, oh, well, that's easy. We feed them ground up pigs. I called the guy's dead serious. <laughs> you know? So so anyway, you can see how crazy this stuff is, um, you know, when you get away from cows on grass. And that's what we wanted to get back to. That's always been our passion, cows on grass. And let's get them finished on grass the way they've been designed. They're designed to eat grass. Uh, cows, cows on corn, um, it's actually a time bomb, Cole, because um, when you're feeding them that grain diet, um, they get acidic, they get, uh, you know, acidosis in their rumen. And you got to always balance that and buffer that because um, what's going to happen is going to, that, that gut of that cow is going to start getting ulcers in it. And if you didn't kill them because they're fat and ready to harvest, if say you want to say, oh, let's prop them up for another year because the market's not right, you can't do that because they're going to die. <laughs> they're, on, they're on the way to death because this, the very thing that you're feeding and make them fat is actually killing them. You know, it's kind of like going to uh, McDonald's all the time and saying, supersize me. You know, it's a, you know, the guy who does that every day. You know, he's not going to feel good after a while. He's also going to gain a ton of weight and he's also going to die. He's, you know, it's a time bomb. So anyway, <laughs> we wanted to get away from all that. And um, 
So the other thing we did was we certified the entire operation organic, all 70 square miles. So we're currently right around 1% of all the certified organic operations in the United States. I'm not talking about cattle. I'm talking about everything. Say it's spinach, say it's berries, say it's milk. If you take all those acreage in America, one out of every 100 acres is on our ranch. And um, so it's covered quite a bit of country. And because of that, you know, uh, we're seeing a lot of the landscape change for the better, because along with organic, we just got a uh, a beef stick, you know, like a meat stick, you know, like a, I might have one at my desk here. I don't, and you know, it's just a, a protein stick that we make just out of our beef. It's got very little else in it. But we just managed to get that certified regenerative through USDA. And it's because we proved to them that we are getting all these practices in place that we're actually regenerating the land. And that that means we're changing the composition of plants and animals out there. We're restoring creeks. We get about 55 miles of creek on Alder Spring that are trout streams. A lot of those were very degraded when we started, and now they're actually very productive. They have trout in them again. They got beaver populations back. Um, they got aspen regeneration areas, you know, so they're really, really doing good. We're getting a lot of plant diversity back, but the coolest thing that really pushed the needle for us with USDA was that we proved through the numbers that our operation actually puts uh, four pounds of carbon dioxide equivalents in the ground for every one pound of beef we produce. So, you know, most cattle in the United States, because of the feedlot emphasis and growing corn and soybeans, um, just about all of them are are, um, carbon positive. They release carbon into the atmosphere. That means they're climate negative. They're actually hurting us. They're actually causing climate change. They're actually causing an issue in our atmosphere. And what we've done is we flipped that over. And we're starting putting that carbon dioxide back in the ground for every pound of beef we produce. So we're 100% climate positive. We're actually contributing to taking care of our climate for the future instead of, <laughs> instead of releasing all this carbon dioxide. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people think, well, well, they didn't figure out the cow belching, you know, the methane part of it. You know, we did. We, you know, I get with some of the best scientists in America on that, you know, PhDs from various universities about how to calculate all that. And they're right. Methane's huge. But we've offset it with this regenerative emphasis, putting carbon in the ground, building soils. And, uh, you know, it's exciting. And with that, Cole, the cool thing was we've been able to double the amount of cattle we run on our ranch. And it's just because that soil has come back. So, yeah, I mean, we don't use chemicals at all. No fertilizers, no herbicides, nothing, none of that. And because that green revolution that happened underground, actual green revolution of of all these animals that live underground um we've been able to get our plants to double their production and double their ability to to harvest sunlight and when we do that we've been able to double the amount of cattle that we've been able to carry on our ranch and um and that's why i have hope that's why we're profitable coal i mean that's like the short story of why we're profitable it's because we can run more cattle than any of our neighbors could on a given acre and it comes back again next year in spades 
and we've been able to increase our herd. We just bought another ranch two years ago, and um, we're just scaling up, and we're scaling up because we can, and because you know we're excited about what's happening. So it's really cool. Is it? You said obviously you're profitable and stuff, but like, so is it less profitable to do it? The you know the cattle, the uh, cattle. What do you call them? I forget what the, you call them with the concrete floors and everything. But is it less profitable that way? Like feedlots. Feed yeah. Is it so, less profitable in your opinion, or? Oh heck yeah, yeah. So you know the problem with it, Cole, is this: <laughs> it's really hard to see. You know, like most of my neighbors grow calves. They're called cow-calf producers. So they have mama cows. They raise the babies to 600 pounds, put them on a semi. They go to a feedlot in Kansas. They're gone. They've left the ranch, okay? So their crop that they're selling is their calves. They're 600-pound calves. We'll take them all the way to like 1,300, 1,400 pounds, you know, to like a, a USDA choice or prime grade before we slaughter them. And then, you know, so that's that's quite a bit more time down the road. My neighbors, they're great producers. And these are solid, solid people, Colt. So don't get me wrong. Um, you know, but their practices are 100% different than mine. So they're using chemical fertilizers. They're using herbicides. Um, they have a lot of machinery. Um, so their overhead is quite a bit higher than mine. We have a very simple operation. We don't have, we have very little machinery. Um, we, we feed most of our hay in the winter by hand. Uh, we're, we're just out on a truck forking it. A lot of my neighbors will have like a machine that does it all for them. They're in their tractor and a t-shirt. And a lot of times call, they're going by on the road and they're smiling at me because we're out there freezing our ass off and they're in a t-shirt, you know, and it, it is funny. Okay. It is funny, but I 100% believe in the power of human labor and I still do it, you know, at my age. I enjoy being out there. Even if it's 20 below zero, I still enjoy being out there with my cattle. Because I really feel like, you know, for me to be active physically with them, I'm learning a lot every time I'm with them. I'm learning something, you know. So that's that's exciting. But so anyway, back to the cost. So what happens here is that for a cow-calf guy who's got a cow and he's got these calves he's raising, it's really hard to isolate whether or not you're profitable. It's hard in our operation because it's a long-term deal. You're buying bulls, uh, you know, they're inseminating your cows. Nine months later, you have a calf. <laughs> and then six months later, you finally get your calf crop. So that right there is nine plus, you know, nine plus six is 15, right there, 15 months. So you're over a year on turning over your initial investment. And that cow might live for 12 years. So now you got to figure out, okay, what's your yield over the 12 years? How many cows did she raise and how many calves did she lose? Um, if she was a heifer, which is, you know, a, an unbred cow, you breed her. Maybe she's going to lose her first calf. Maybe she might not take the calf. You know, there's a lot of psychological things there. Um, what about winter feeding? How much did that cost you to do? What did that equipment cost when you drove it off the place? Because, you know, buy a new John Deere tractor today could easily cost you a quarter million dollars, one tractor. And that's no equipment behind it. You're not buying a hay baler that you need. You're not buying the swather that you need. You're not buying the pickup that you need to drive around your fields. And then you're not even paying for your ranch. These ranchers are horribly expensive right now. Mm -hmm. It's horrible, Cole. I mean, I can't even... Yeah, you know, I, I know neighbors that are just dirt poor. Like I got one neighbor who's got a dirt floor. 
Okay. And they, they got not enough money to ever refinish their house or take care of it. Okay. <laughs> and they're driving these beater pickups and he has one decent pickup. All his hay equipment's junk, you know. But I know if the guy cashed out today, he's worth $6 million. Okay. He's, he's easily worth $6 million. Okay. The guy's super rich, but he's dirt poor. You know, because he, 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 it's all tied up in real estate. It's all tied up in cattle. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, most guys and gals who are in ranching, yeah, I hate to say it, but I bet, I bet 80% of them in my country here in central Idaho, I bet 80% of them are going backwards. Let me give you an example. I just had a neighbor sell his ranch. Um, just a few ranches up from me. And he's a, he's a Silicon Valley guy. Okay. He, he got a lot of money and uh, he made his money in Silicon Valley, retired, bought this ranch. And he only gave like a million bucks for it or something, or like 2 million, you know, pretty good sized ranch. One of the bigger ones in the Valley. Anyway, he just sold it and uh, he got 7.5 million out of the deal. And his kid, this guy's in his eighties. His kid was thinking he was going to get the money. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, you know, the check for, you know, 7.5 million comes in through the, uh, through the title company. And they start dispersing, you know, who gets the money. And his kid's surprised to find out that there's $6.5 million worth of debt incurred that was put on the land so what these bankers will do <laughs> this is so ridiculous okay because we've seen an exponential increase in land value over the past 10 years because they're not printing any more land coal they're just not you know there's only a limited amount of land out there in america and they're not making anymore you know so because of that a lot of uh, wealthy investors uh for investment security are buying real estate like i just read about a guy in colorado who owns four hundred thousand deeded acres right now bill gates owns like a quarter million acres uh ted turner probably owns around you know at least half a million acres um so these guys are putting their money away, you know, buying real estate because you know what stock market could do anything right now. It's still pretty hot, uh, but you know, they're getting older and they get more conservative as they get older and they don't want to chase like mutual fund investments or anything high risk. So they tie it up in land. So guess what? They go buy that property and uh, they're just tying it up. And as a result, there's competitive buying, which is raising property value. So anyway, Banker sees my neighbor, and um, so his operators, his managers say, hey, um, you know, we need a new tractor, or we need some new pickups, or maybe we need some new four-wheelers or UTVs or something, or maybe we just need to increase the cow herd to try to scale up, because that's what a lot of people have done around. used to be when I was a kid, 200-cow outfit was a good outfit. But now you really can't make it unless you've got 700 mama cows, you know. So you're going to have 700 cows. you got to have all the bulls to, to breed them. And then you got 
you got to have the horse flesh. You got to have all the four wheelers. You got to have all that hay equipment. Then you're going to raise, you know, 700 calves conceivably, put them on the market. And hopefully that's enough cash flow that you're going to be able to pay for, <laughs> pay for all these things. So, I mean, I'm laughing because it's such a crazy, crazy treadmill to get on when you're in this thing. It's very complicated. But anyway, <laughs> um, so these bankers just loan money at an appreciating value, Cole. And, you know, this guy would say, I need a higher operating loan just to be able to operate. Could you give me that? Or I need to buy this equipment. And the banker would say, well, you know, we're going to just put the lien against your land, against the value of that land. Because the banker's always going to win, right? They're always secure. So they know they're going to get paid. It's just a matter of time. Okay, so the banker is going to rent money to you based on the value of your equity. You know, so as the equity base increases, they're going to loan you more money. <laughs> they love you, you know, because you're going to come in there and they're going to shake your hand and smile at you and say, well, here's here's a check for a quarter million dollars. You know, that should get you through the year. You know, go continue operating. Anyway, that's where all the money went. Long story short, that's where all the money went. It went into all this short-term debt that this manager had accrued, and there was no money left after $7.5 bucks. So it's because he was not profitable. <laughs> he was losing money the whole time, you know, and refused to acknowledge it. So it's really common. A lot of people, you know, are not seeing it. And, you know, they feel like they're getting richer, and they are because of their equity base. But their equity base can only support so many cattle. So it's really complicated. But it's really like I, I just went to a school. Um, it was actually a marketing event for the school to convince people to take the school. It's called Ranching for Profit. And the, pre, the presenter got up there and he said, you know what? You know, people give me a hard time about the title all the time. And he said, do you know why that is? And the guy in the back, there's about 60 ranchers in the room. He said, because ranching is never profitable. You know, there's this bumper sticker you can see in middle Idaho here in Texas, all the way up to here. And real common on ranch pickups. Um, it said, my dream is to become a rancher so I could and have a million dollars so I could ranch it all away. And now the bumper sticker's changing. It's like, my dream is to be a rancher and have $10 million so I could ranch it all away. And it's happening. It's actually, it's not a fallacy. It's true. So that's what Carol and I hit, got hit in the face like with a ton of bricks. We, we found out in about five or 10 years that this was a losing money proposition. We were sinking. We were sinking bad. And um, we had to come up with another way to make money. And that's why we came up with the direct market beef business. We said, we're going to cut out the middleman. We're going to sell beef online. And we're going to sell it to people like you, Cole, people all over the country. They're going to buy it on our web store and we're going to sell directly to them and cut out all that middleman so we can be profitable. And you know what? It saved our bacon. It saved our bacon. And now in the meantime, the soils have caught up to our management and now we've been able to double the cattle. And that's what actually truly made us profitable is that we can carry much more cattle than we used to. And we're selling this beef at the same time. So it's been a real blessing for us, but it's a long road to figure it out. You know, um, I've talked at a lot of conferences and, <laughs> and stuff about this. And it's, you know, it's one of these paths where I can't say to people, oh, you got to do this because it was hard. 
And a lot of people don't want hard anymore, you know, especially if they're my age. They're like, I'm sick of hard. I just want to cash out. I want to sell to a guy like Bill Gates. And I want to hang it up. I want to take my cake and eat it. And I want to buy a little house in Arizona or Florida. And my wife and I are going to retire there. And screw the kids. They didn't want a ranch anyway. But my problem is my kids want a ranch. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not as common anymore. Even here in Ohio, you hear there's a lot yeah. of uh, farms selling and shutting down, essentially, just because yeah. the kids don't want in it. But I think a lot of it is because they've, it is, you do see a lot of money losing game. It's not, it, a lot of them aren't winning for say, I mean, so They're it's a very common thing. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard in appreciating land market because I know it's happening by you too. You know, some of it is driven by subdivision because, you know, when you can grow houses on your place, you can make a hell of a lot more money than growing corn. You know, it's a no brainer. Of course, I'm going to grow houses. You know, I'm going to take the money and run, you know, for us, (laughs) you know, it never used to be like this, but in this inflationary market, you know, we got this 12% inflation index right now, and it varies. Sometimes, some days it's up to 14 or 15, some days it's below 10, but we're probably averaging 11, 10, 11, 12% right now in inflation. So, Cole, if you cash out your deal, you know, say you're my neighbor over here, you're going to cash out your deal for $7 million. He's 85 years old. Say he got the money. Now, what the crap are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do with that money? Because, you know, if you figure it out, <laughs> Let's see. Let's see. Where's my uh, handy dandy calculator? Here's one right here. Let's just do it right now, okay? Turn this baby on. Okay, clear. Okay, so you know at uh, at twelve percent, you know, so you got your seven million dollars. Did I get the right amount of zeros? Yes. Times point one two equals. Cole, you're going to lose $840,000 a year sitting on that money. You know, just sitting on it's it's burning. It's on fire as soon as you take it, as soon as you take the money. And that's what kind of blows me away about these people. It's like, wait, 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 wait. Let me get this straight. You're going to take the money. And then what? You know, now you're 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 embracing a new, whole new level of stress. Because it's like, well, shoot, I don't want to lose almost a million dollars a year on my money. I want to, I want to keep that, you know, I want to put that in a mutual fund. Who are you going to trust? You don't know nothing. You're, you're, you're a corn farmer. What the crap do you know about investing money? You're going to trust Merrill Lynch. I mean, who are you going to trust? Right? So it's a whole new stress level. And to me, that's no peace of mind either. I would much rather say, no, my wife are going to stay here on the ranch. You know, we're going to be here with our kids and grandkids and we're going to be in this legacy and watch them. And help them when I want to work. And, you know, what a much more blessed life, you know. Because, yeah, you can burn through some money and buy a new pickup or whatever. Buy a nice house. And, you know, maybe maybe you're going to get a swimming pool in the backyard. But, Colt, when I'm 60 years old, you know, that's what I am right now. I don't really care about swimming pools anymore, you know. I just want to hang out with my grandkids. Put them on a horse. See how that works out, you know put my kids on a dirt bike with me. You know, I ride dirt bike all the time. 60 years old, I'm on a dirt bike for thousands and thousands of miles a year. I I can ride better than most young people I know at 60, you know, and I'd like to put my kids on a 
my grandkids on a dirt bike, see how that works out. Or, you know, put them on a horse and we can ride, you know, some days we'll ride 25, 30 miles horseback and get their, get them a good seat in that horse. And, you know, we do a lot of backcountry skiing. You know, I, it's my passion in the wintertime. We drop everything and we head up to the peaks and we do a lot of backcountry skiing. We do a lot of lift service skiing. We're ski freaks. We love deep powder and we can ski it just about better than anybody I know. And uh, we're addicts, you know. So, Cole, what the crap would I want to move to Arizona for? I like it right here. Yeah, the big thing here, especially, is the uh, Intel moving into where we're at. And it they bought up all of pretty much all the farmland uh in a certain area and yeah. i know a lot of farmers actually said no at first but yeah intel just offers a higher price they just kept going up and up with their price until they got I everybody know. to bite. it's great well what are we gonna eat cole is this I crap keeps going on what are we gonna eat you know, know. we're gonna buy our food from brazil we're gonna buy it from china you know china controls a lot of ag land in africa right now they're staging themselves to control the world's food breadbasket. You know, they already own about 15% of the ports on the Mississippi River. Chinese interests own the ports. Our corn grain ports, the ports that haul our produce off the land on the Mississippi River in barges are owned by Chinese people. You know, I got a neighbor right here that can look at his place, 700 acres. One of the richest lawyers in Shanghai owns that piece of property. They're buying our farmland. Because we're no longer profitable, you know, and you're not going to be if you keep putting these inputs as petroleum based products of, you know, fertilizer and, and pesticides and herbicides and diesel fuel. You keep burning that crap, you know, and instead of having cattle work for you, you know, our, our emphasis has always been let the cow do the work for us. Let them harvest the grass instead of us harvesting the grass. You know, <laughs> I think what got me started on <laughs> I was talking to an old friend of mine. He said, Glenn, there's two kinds of people who have cattle and you got to determine who you want to be. He said, there's nothing wrong with either. But he said, you need to determine which one you're going to be. And I said, what's the difference? He said, well, farmers own cattle. They bring the feed to the cattle. He said, ranchers own cattle. They bring the cattle to the grass. He said, what do you want to do? Do you want the cow to work for you or do you want to work for the cow? And that, <laughs> that really hit home. It really hit home because I was like, I want the cow to work for me. You know, I want to partner with that cow and have her work for me. And when I, you know, it's about changing mind. And when you get that mind shift and think about things differently, you flip everything over and you start looking at everything and you start thinking, how can I make the cow work for me here? You know, in this situation, on this new ranch we just bought, how can I make the cow regenerate that ground and bring about a change in wellness in those soils and a change in plant diversity that's not only going to bless her as a cow, but it's also going to bless us with nutritional diversity in our food that we produce, you know. So, um, you know, these are hard questions that... You know, we've lost our way in agriculture. We've, we've really lost our way because we've lost, you know, I think what it is, is agriculture has become this thing that's become an agent on an ecosystem, you know, got this ecosystem of soil or grassland or whatever, 
we're going to start doing this to it. We're, we're going to dominate this. We're going to subdue it. We're going to plow this. We're going to spray it. We're going to do whatever we can to make it bend to our will. And what Carol and I have realized over the years now, and it took a while to get there, and we're still not, we, we still have so much to learn, but we realized that we, if we thought differently about it and said, hey, wait, what if instead of that kind of arrogant mindset, that we said, hey, what if we join the ecosystem? What if we actually become part of it? You know, and that's not some preservationist crazy shit. You know, like we have three or 400 ahead of elk that'll come down and try to eat our hay from our cows and stuff like that. And, you know, I don't put up with that crap. We're sharing an ecosystem. We're part of the ecosystem with them. We have a right to live here too. They can't take our feed. So, you know, I'll run them off or whatever. You know, they'll come out of the mountains and they'll come down here. And if, you know, they're causing us a lot of trouble, I'll call fish and game and they'll send me a hunter every day and kill them until they're done, you know, until until they leave. And it don't take long to train a herd of elk. You know, I had a friend of mine with 2,000 head elk on his place. They started killing them. It only took killing about 10 of them, you know, to to have those elk not come back anymore. But you know, that's part of just being a member of an ecosystem. That's not um, trying to change everything. You know, I totally love elk and I respect them. We live with wolves on that range. Uh, they howl a lot of nights up there. They're, they were eating our cattle really bad uh, in the early, um, you know, in the early 19 or 20 teens. Um, you know, like 2014, we lost about $40,000 worth to wolves. And Carol and I wanted to put our heads together and try to figure out a way that we could coexist without having to kill them and without them killing us. And since then, we haven't lost one animal, the wolves, and they, they're with us by camp. They watch us during the day. They come into our camp while we're gone. These are big, these are big dogs. These aren't coyotes, by the way. I talked to a friend of mine who just shot one. Because it's wide open season in, in Idaho. You can hunt them all year. We have a lot of wolves, and um, <laughs> this wolf that he shot, Cole, was 175 pounds, uh, bigger than a lot of humans, okay, 175 pounds, and when he held it up, when he held it up in front of him, that wolf's head was like three times the size of a basketball, and um, 175 pounds, he could hardly pick it up. And fully stretched out, he said, Glenn, the wolf was taller than you are. I'm six foot six. These are big animals. They're serious. They are serious top of the food chain predators, you know. And, uh, and we, we had to come up with a, with a way to live with them. And, um, you know, now we got mutual respect with them. And, uh, you know, it's just part, part of being an ecosystem member. It's you know, it's humbling because you learn so much from these things, you know, whether it be a plant or a bird or, you know, bald eagle or beavers or lions. We have a lot of mountain lions. We have a lot of wolves. We have a lot of bears living with us up there. And we're part of that ecosystem. And now we have a mutual respect. You know, that's really humbling because you watch these animals and they know we're there and we coexist. And, you know, I think that's where agriculture lost its way. I think that we could, we, we could take care, 
you know, I feel like agriculture has become this thing where there's some portion or many portions maybe, but at least there's one major portion of life that we're hell bent on killing. You know, maybe in the Midwest, on in Ohio, it's soils. Killed all the soil biology. Now we just put fertilizer down and soil is a medium to put, grow plants on. You know, but for me, agriculture really needs to be this thing where we respect everything and where we either can sustain or enhance the life that's all around us. You know, that's what it should have been all along, but we, we've really lost our way. And I think that when we do that with nature, it'll pay us back. You know, right now it's actually paying us back in cash. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people don't get. Yeah, you know, and, and I, Cole, I get people say, yeah, but you can't feed America, you know? And let me tell you, if I took just the soybean ground, not even corn ground, and got the kind of stock densities we're able to run, there's about 96 million acres or no, 86 million acres of soybean ground in America today, okay? If I just had those acres and stocked them with the rate we can, we'd more than be able to sustain the amount of cattle in the United States. There's 96 million head of cattle in the United States. We'd easily be able to sustain all those cattle, all the beef needs, all the outback steakhouses, all the supermarkets with grass-fed beef without even using corn. You know, so it's just about rebuilding those soils and getting that soil life to work with you. So, you know, where all those people say, oh, you can't feed the world with this, it's, it's bull crap. It's not true. The numbers aren't there. The numbers are real, and I'm seeing them right out my back door. And we live in a horrible climate. We're at 5,000 feet, man. Our growing season is like five months long. <laughs> what can I do in southern Ohio or, say, you know, Arkansas or, or Alabama? They have incredible growing seasons, you know? So, anyway, if any of your um, listeners wants to challenge me on that, I'd take them on in a second because I got the numbers to prove it. So, um, anyway, it's it's cool stuff, you know, and it's it's definitely outside the norm. Um, you know, it's because we've been fed a line of bullcrap by the universities, by the chemical companies, by our county agents. They're all together, and it because it's because it's cold. There's so much dang money in the deal. You know, there's so much dang money in agribusiness and the chemical industry and the seed industry. They're all in bed together. And they've all fed all these farmers a bill of goods. These farmers are starving to death, not making money. But let me tell you, Monsanto, DuPont, um, Bear, who owns Monsanto now, um, they're all making seriously good money. Our congressionals, a lot of them are making seriously good money. It's because they get nice campaign contributions from all these guys. The universities getting tons of research dollars for chemical agriculture because it's worth so much money. It's, you know, just one drug company, Merck, uh, that supplies a lot of animal pharmaceuticals. They also did a bunch of mRNA vaccines uh, during COVID. They're a $65 billion company, and they're they're not the biggest one. You know, it's just, there's just an incredible amount of money tied up in this thing. So the the, the inertia, the momentum of chemical agriculture is great. And, uh, you know, it's scary from, you know, certain standpoints, but on the other, it's, I can give true hope to somebody and say, you know what? The hell's 
of our ecosystem is enough to sustain us, to sustain human life, even as it is, you know. So it's exciting. It's funny that you actually brought up the wolves because we were just talking about this on an episode on episode 215. And we I was like, I I don't I mean, I've never seen a wolf in person, but I know like coyotes and I know they're a lot bigger than coyotes. And my my buddy was like, how like how big are they? And I looked it up and the average male is 180 pounds. And he's like, I'm 180 pounds. And I was like, yeah, I was like, they're they're, they're huge animals. (laughs) Yeah, they're massive. I wanted to kind of I actually wanted to ask your thoughts on the wolves being released in Colorado, if you have anything on that. Yeah, so they did that to us in the 90s, Cole. Um, At that time, I was still firefighting. (laughs) I came, I I was a wildland firefighter, and I came off this fire when my crew, I was on a 20-man crew, and we came off this crew, and uh, our truck, trucks came into fire dispatch in Salmon, Idaho. And we've been spiked out on that fire for over a week, and we come into this deal, and uh, we'll pull. We pull our gear. We're all wearing yellow and green Nomex clothing, and we we all got Nomex packs and stuff. And we're dropping all our packs in a big pile, and uh, we're just waiting for rides to get home. And so we come in, this dispatch area has a big giant drive-in bay where fire trucks will go in there, wildland fire trucks will go in, and that's where all our gear is piled up. And on the other end of the bay is another big overhead door. And there, there's these three crates, these big giant aluminum crates with holes in them. And uh, there was a guy poking around by the crates and I kind of sauntered over there while I was waiting for my ride and said, hey, so what's in the crate? And he said, go take a look. So I get down on my hands and knees and look through the holes in the crate, and they're about this big, and I just put my eyes there. And right on the other side is this female wolf. I knew it was female because it said female on top of the thing. It's this female wolf. And she and I are looking at each other about 12 inches apart. And we had already started running cattle then. And uh, we always had wolves, but never very many. And now the Fish and Wildlife Service, part of U.S. Department of Interior, was hell-bent on releasing these wolves in central Idaho and trying to build that population up. So they went and live-trapped a whole bunch of them in in, uh, Alberta and British Columbia and brought them down. Anyway, she and I just stared at each other for a little bit. We just made eye contact. We're just locked eyes. And I just looked at her and I said, are you going to change my life forever? And that's the deal, Cole. They do change your life forever when you're running cattle. Because we uh, we almost quit when we lost that $40,000 worth of cattle that year. We come home licking our wounds. And we said, no more. We're not going to run on that range anymore. It's over. And I had a friend of mine at the Nature Conservancy at that time. We partnered with them on all kinds of projects. I 
I got no bones to pick that uh, that organization. I can't say anything but good about them because they've been fantastic partners. They they allowed us to get um, salmon 900 miles from the Pacific Ocean back onto our ranch to spawn here. They they created all kinds of opportunities for partnerships. And I called this friend of mine down there in Nature Conservancy. His name was Mark Davidson. I said, Mark, I don't know what we're going to do about these dang wolves, but um, I want to do something. And he said, well, just let me know what you want to do, and maybe we can partner with you. And so Carol and I actually started looking at old trappers' accounts and, you know, from the 1800s and from found wolves had always been here, you know, and, uh, and, you know, it was about that time we were thinking that, um, you know, I don't have any problem with people hunting wolves. I get a lot of friends who are avid wolf hunters. Um, so it's not like I'm against it. I just didn't want to kill them as part of what we do, because it was kind of against what I believed our position should be in these ecosystems. So we came up with something and, you know, it went back all the way to, I mean, even reading stuff in the Bible, you know, if you read stuff in the Bible, David was a sheep herder. Um, a lot of early people in the Bible were sheep herders. The shepherds on Christmas, if you remember, watching their flocks by night. Why the crap are they watching their flocks by night in the hills outside of Bethlehem? It's because there's predators out there. And if they're not watching them, Dang predators are going to eat them all. I got a friend of mine named Fred Provenza. He's a PhD, retired from Utah State University. He penned a book with a friend of his from France. It's called The Art and Science of Shepherding. And so these guys in France, um, they started to deal with predators like wolves and bears. And because they got a real kind of green movement there that's releasing all these animals back in the wild. And so these shepherds, just by their physical human presence on the ground, have really, really curtailed predator loss there. So I said to Carol, you know, if people could do it for, you know, this is one of the oldest professions, it turns out, Cole. So if people could do this for, you know, millennia, why the crap can't we reinvent that here on horseback? Why can't we do it right here on our range, on our 70 square miles we run on? You know, at 70 square miles, I just want to tell you, it's a big chunk of country. I mean, it's when you're on top of a mountain up there, a lot of times the grazing country we run on, you're looking out there. It is far as you can literally see. It's to the horizon where the land meets the sky over mountain and valley, mountain and valley, river and mountain and valley and creek and canyon, all the way up to alpine tundra. It is as far as you can see a lot of places. You know, that that's part of our grazing country. It's it's a big piece of real estate. That's why these wolves like it up there, because it's it's wild. It's just a wilderness. So it's like, you know what? If we can get up there horseback and herd these cattle and live with them and start living with them full time, where we have a cow camp up there all the time, moving with the cattle all year. I think we could keep these cattle safe. I called Fred about it, the doctor guy who wrote that book, and he said, I think you can. So I said, you know, we're going to have to learn how to do this because it's 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 not a no-brainer, Cole. We're really good as cowboys in the West, riding horseback all day, moving cattle. 
The difference is I need to move them with their heads down. Most cowboys are really good at moving those cattle with their heads up. So we'll have four or 500 head in a herd and they got their heads up. Guess what? If their heads are up, my I am not making any money because they have got to gain weight. This is our finished cattle. You know, we raise organic grass-fed finished beef, kill about 400 of them a year. And if I don't have their heads down all the time, gaining weight, I'm not going to make it. You know, I'm not going to make money if I can't get them to gain weight. So we need, need to relearn everything about stockmanship. We just need to relearn, you know, even like the nuance of the body position of your horse related to those cattle. It can make a huge difference, Cole. If you turn your horse's head to face the cattle, to stop eating. If you're too close, by one foot, one foot, you get into their flight zone, one foot of difference with your horse, they will stop eating. So there's all this nuance in cow, cow language. You know, and this fit in right with what I'm talking to you about, about being part of an ecosystem. Those cows now are part of an ecosystem up there, and we're their partners. So now we can move them all day with their heads down, grazing. But it was only because Nature Conservancy partnered with us for three years, and they said, we'll give you $25,000 a year to figure this out, to hire the people you need to figure this thing out. And they really helped us do it. And we're still learning. We ain't there yet. But it's made a huge difference. And because of that, we haven't lost an animal to a wolf. I had friends who talked to me two days ago, met him in town. We're at the body shop. He just... He had a brand new um, Ford F-350 pickup, a beautiful Lariat pickup, 2023. Hit a bighorn sheep with it on one of the bends down here along the river. Just, you know, and what's crazy is when you spend $90,000 on a freaking pickup, the body shop looks at that and says, um, yeah, we'll fix it. Ain't even near total, even though it's totally, totally thrashed up front. And, you know, my wheels are turning because I only drive old 7.3 diesels. You know, that's it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and they're all 20 years old. But they're, I mean, they're, some are really nice pickups yet, but they're, they got enough power for me to ranch with and pull cattle. But anyway, he bought a, it was eighty-five or $9,000 pickup. Anyway, I said, holy cow, that thing looks about total from my perspective, you know, with one of my older pickups. Because I, I had just had one fixed there the same day I was picking it up. And Ben says to me, well, it's not how it quite worked with a $90,000 pickup, Glenn. I said, well, what kind of body damage are we talking here? What did that bighorn sheep do? He said, first of all, let me let, let me show you. So we go into the back of the pickup. He's got the sheep <laughs> it's a full-size ram bighorn sheep with almost a full curl laying in the back of his pickup. And I said, what are you going to do with that? He said, I'm going to eat it. And it's illegal to just throw it in. You got to report it to fish and game. You can, they'll let you have it if you hit it on the road, anything. If it's an elk or deer, they'll let you have it and you can eat it. So he was going to eat it. But, um, and I went front of the pickup and it was totally hashed up there. And, uh, he says, you know how much damage that was? I said, no idea. He said, $25,000 of damage. But, you know, can't total it because the pickup was 90. Mm. <laughs> so anyway, but anyway, what was that was a rabbit trail. But he had just killed a wolf the day before on our grazing range. 
you know, a lone alpha male, or not, he wasn't an alpha yet. He was a lone male, just wander across what we call Bear Basin up there. He kills one, you know. So, I mean, they're just alive and well up there, and there's a lot of them. People estimate that there's 1,500 to 2,000 wolves just in our in our county and the county next to us. So there's a lot of them. And, you know, for the most part, they never get to meet a human because there's nobody up there. It's just wilderness. So going back to the question, I haven't forgot it. It's Colorado. You know what? I'm like, there's a way to coexist. And if you would figure out how to run your cattle up there, in a way that's part of an ecosystem instead of acting upon it let's join the ecosystem become part of it i don't think you have to kill wolf one in colorado you know recreationally there's people who love to hunt wolves i love these people you know they're my friends and i'm i'm okay with i'm not against hunting wolves you know but i am against having them you know collide with us on our grazing and saying no no there's no there's no room for you to coexist in this ancient eco- ecosystem where you were here before us, you know? So I think, yeah, Colorado is, you know, it, it's going to really hit the fan down there, you know, controversy wise, just like it did in Idaho. But I, I think there's a way to do it. And, um, I, you know, a lot of people think we're crazy, Cole, you know, um, but they can think that I don't care, you know, because for me, I think this is right. And it's respectful to to live in coexistence with them. So, so how many people you guys are still doing the campouts and stuff? How many people do you, like interns do you have along with your family? So we're just debating that today as to what we're going to do. Um, so we don't know exactly how many we're going to pick up this year. Um, so it it you know it is our family, but you know I got also like. I think six or seven guys and gals that'll come back this year to ride and they're paid, you know, because they got expertise. They, they were interns last year. So a lot of them, we just hire back as a paid person because now they know what's going on. You know, they got the horsemanship skills now. And the really tough thing to find in today's world is the stockmanship skills that I really need for those cattle to gain weight, you know, and be wise how to handle them in super rough country, you know, like, some of this country is just flat vertical. You know, uh, most people I put on horseback up there are not okay with it because it's you're on horseback on an ancient buffalo trail that's this thick, you know, this wide. And if that horse missteps and rolls, you're you're dead, Cole. I mean, there's no question, you're dead. You know, we have this <laughs> we have this this joke, you know. Um, with these new interns, we'll put them on there and they're freaking out. You can see, I mean, some are almost crying because they're scared, you know, and, um, and one of the kids or I will turn back and we'll say, trust the horse, Luke. And we'll just keep riding, you know, spin off from star Wars, trust the force, Luke, you know, so <laughs> you can trust the force, you know, <laughs> but you can trust the horse and our horses have all been, you know, they've been up there for years and they got good solid feet on them. And you know what? They got four feet on the ground. You only got two. So they got two up on you and they know what the crap's going on and don't stress them out at all. They don't care because, you know, I mean, you know, if a horse could talk, 
to one of these interns, you know, horse would say, what do you think? What do you, what do you make me for? Some kind of idiot? I'm not going to misstep and lose my footing on a hill like this. You got to be an idiot, you know? So a lot of people have trouble trusting the horse, you know, and, um, but, you know, you kind of sort through them and, and they get their feet under them and get wise to it. Um, after they start riding and, uh, but it's 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 a horribly rough piece of country, and it's it's extra horrible if you're trying to chase cattle on it, you know, and trying to keep the herd together. So, um, yeah, it's a lot, and the days are a lot of days aren't fun. This year we had a lot of rain up there, and here's what it looks like, Cole. You get up at six in the morning or something like that. You cook breakfast in the wall tent, and it's pouring. Okay, and your horse is out there. They're grazing. So you go catch your horse in the pouring rain and you bring them over. They're soaking wet. Your gear is still soaking wet from yesterday. Okay. And you're going to get on that horse and break out of camp around eight o'clock in the morning, right out in the pouring rain with 400 head of cattle. And you're going to take them to some of the best grass on earth. And cattle don't care, they don't care nothing about the rain. Horse is not super happy in the rain all day, but it just rains on and off pretty hard all day. You're wearing a slicker. Let me tell you, I don't care what kind of slicker you're wearing and what kind of hat you got on. You know, when it's, you're out there fully exposed on back of a horse all day, you're going to get wet. It's it's not if, it's when. You know, I wear leather shafts over my entire legs, and I got, you know, an oil skin slicker and um, got cowboy boots on. It's going to start soaking through, and then you got to do it again the next day. You know, you don't have a change of gear. You go to bed, and yeah, maybe you can put on some clean underwear and some socks that are dry, but maybe not. Your jeans could still be soaked because you got your other pair. Because I tell everybody to bring a change of something up there. So anyway, you're putting on wet clothes by day three, okay? And um, it starts <laughs> starts wearing out. Here's the other day thing, Cole, that takes a lot of people a lot to get used to. You're running these cattle at seven, eight thousand feet, and when you get a rainstorm in the summer up there at seven, eight thousand feet, that rain is coming from forty thousand. A lot of times, it's mixed with hail, and the rain is ice cold. It's not like a warm rain in Ohio, where you're out there wearing a pair of shorts, just walking around in the rain, thinking, "Wow, this feels good on a hot summer day." This is mid-July, and it might snow. And we've had snow a lot of times in July. It's colder than crap. If you don't have gloves, like I tell these kids, make sure you bring gloves. And it's like it's like July, and they're thinking, you know what? And the fact of the matter is, you're going to freeze your tootsies off if you. you know, some of my kids pack hand warmers in July because they got to put them in those gloves because otherwise your hands turn to ice. That rain's coming down at 38 degrees. You're heading for hypothermia in a hurry if you're not ready for it, you know. So, um, so, and then the next day it'll be a hundred, okay. And you're dying, you're dying of heat exhaustion. I had a kid up there two years ago, almost died from heat exhaustion. I thought I was gonna have to life light him out here. He just wasn't drinking enough water, you know. And a week before that, he almost froze his butt off because it started to snow. So, you know, the weather alone along with riding a horse for 16 hours if your butt's not conditioned to it. It's not fun times. You know, a lot of times it's not fun times. It's just a heck of a lot of work. But um, 
You know, what's interesting, Cole, is every one of these kids that come up here, and I call them kids because I'm 60 and they're 19 or 20. Um, they're younger than most of my kids. Every one of these kids comes up here, and if they can stick it out, some quit, some leave, they can't handle it. They lose it. They just totally lose their crap. And it's psychological more than anything. That's the number one thing we interview for when we do these internship interviews. We're making sure they're stable up here. If they do weird mannerism stuff or start acting weird, for one thing, they ain't going to get along in cow camp because they're stuck in a camp for a week with like three other people who are going to end up hating them or try to kill them because they're wing nuts, you know? I mean, they're just out there, you know, right? If they're coming up with weird stuff and they can't fit socially, you, you, that kind of stuff grates on you, especially when everybody's exhausted. You're cooking together. You're all, you know, communally cooking me meals together and stuff. And if they're whack jobs, nobody likes a whack job after three days with them, especially if it's raining, okay? So they got to be that way. And they all got to be emotionally stable in their head. So some people have had to get, you know, they I'd get a text on the satellite because there's no cell service up there. That's the other thing. There's no freaking Instagram up there, dude. You know, in a lot of those places, there's nothing. You can't get on TikTok. You can't check out your friends on IG. You're toast. Okay, as far as social media goes, and a lot of people are so addicted to phone they can't even quite function. You know, so um, anyway, it's. You know, that's why some of these kids crack. They lose it. You know, they just lose it. And I got to get them out of there. And uh, but now we're pretty good. I mean, nobody quit. Nobody quit last year. We had a great crew. And it's because we filter them pretty hard. We had, I think, 350 applicants. And we filtered them down to last year, I think, was about 16, 20 different people. And, you know, both guys and gals. All walks of life. I mean, 100% all walks of life. You know, I've had, you know, ethnicity all over the board, you know, um, fantastic. You know, it's super interesting because you'll get these people from an absolutely different culture than what we're accustomed to. You know, they're from Cincinnati or maybe they're from Alabama or maybe they're from, we had a kid who's living in Scotland last year. Um, we had two kids from Carolinas. And um, so it's just really diverse mix. We, we get Valley girls from California, you know, um, you know, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, they're a Valley girl, but they pull it off. They pull it off. It's all about what's up here, you know, and whether or not they're tough enough. And, uh, and some of them, you know, I think when I pick them up at the airport, I think, man, crap, they're not going to make it. They're just not going to make it. But my kids do all the hiring and they filter them pretty close. And I, they surprise me. Some of these kids, they pull a rabbit of a hat and it's like, holy smokes. They made her, you know? So, but at the end of it, Cole, every one of them changed. They're a different human. They are no longer the same. You know, a lot of them cry on the way out of here. That was the hardest thing they ever did. But they're crying it because they loved it. You know, it just got, it just, it got in their bloodstream is what it did, you know? Yeah, I've actually had one of your interns on uh, the podcast, Matthew Ware. He was on oh, the yeah. podcast. Yeah, so that's, that's actually where I originally heard about you guys, and he had nothing but good things to say about everything. And uh, great actually, Matt was great. So I, when he was explaining everything you guys do, like obviously not as in deep a detail as what we're getting today, but just it was like wow, like the things like he. he 
just took in all of it and he said it was one of the best experiences of his life yeah no he was great and you know he was one of those guys who come here and he didn't know anything you know Mm -hmm. and um we actually hired him the following year and uh you know he just come a long ways you know he just really really changed it was just foundational you know it, it just changed his foundation inside him about how he thought about everything you know whether it be the wild country or the horses or the plants or other people you know he was it just really changed it got a hold of him it's pretty cool but i also wanted to ask you kind of about you know the the campouts themselves you said there's like three to four people usually is it like a rotation or how does it work exactly with them so it, it varies uh cole like this year we're actually thinking of turning switching things up a little bit so we're thinking of having like uh, a total of like eight people in a camp at a time and um there will be a crew in the morning and a crew in the afternoon and this is just to break the days up a little bit so they don't become so grueling because some days it's not unusual to have 20 hours you know and it, people just get wore out you know they're getting three four hours of sleep on rough ground they're all sleeping on the ground and you got 400 head of cattle sleeping right next to you a lot of people aren't used to that so they don't sleep good because cattle are always making noise the horses are making noise there's noises in the night whether it be owls or wolves or whatever um you know they eat good but the, even the food the food is super great but you, they can't eat enough they just can't eat enough you know i mean they, they absolutely fill up but they're processing so many calories that they can't keep up with how much they eat. I mean, they physically can't get enough down them because it's so demanding. And um, so this year, I think what we're going to do is have first crew get up at 4.30 a.m., saddle up their horses, get the cattle out of there before sun up at 5.36, do the morning graze. These cattle are very... Um, they're very habit oriented so you can do a good morning graze where they really fill up and somewhere on the mountain up there somewhere you know you'll just find a spot that's got some level country settle them cattle in there and more often than not early afternoon they lay down and they just chew cud they just hang out and rest get a drink then i was thinking what we could do is crew b comes in and replaces them Crew B rides the 10 o'clock at night, okay? Crew A just takes a siesta, takes care of their horses, turns them out on pasture. And uh, and these camps, they move every week, by the way. They're in new places every week. As far as, like, the total mileage, Cole, um, we've put in GPS in saddlebags to see how far we go. Over the course of the summer, it's 600 miles. We ride 600 miles. Cattle walk 600 miles. So, um, so you're always seeing new country all the time. You're covering, you know, you go through a canyon and over an entire mountain range and drop into the next valley, and you'll see this huge creek down there. It's beautiful, and um, I can't even describe it. You know, and maybe it's in sagebrush and the low country, and you see cactus. Then toward the end of summer, you're in high country. It's timber. You can't even see more than five cows in. 
and you're herding them through this timber that's so thick you can see five head out of 400. That's it because the timber's so thick you can't even see anybody else on horseback. It's you, and you just kind of know you get a feel of where you are in relative to everybody else, and you just get a geographic sense in your head. Basically, it's your own GPS in your head of where you are on a mountainside that's just totally thick dark timber for miles and miles and hundreds of miles after you and um somehow you come back to camp that night with all the cattle and it's usually my daughters that are crew bossing we have some other good people now that are crew bossing too but they know that country almost better than i do i mean they, they you can mention a rock at a 70 square miles a rock a specific rock I'll say it to Melanie, I said, do you remember that one rock that has that pinkish color to it right next to that big pine tree? And she'll say, do you mean the one up the head of Big Hat Creek just before you drop into Iron Mountain? I said, yeah, that's the one. And she'll remember it. She'll know the rock. You know, we're, you know I've been with people in New York City a lot of times. You know, they, they, they know where every little grotto in New York City is, <laughs> you know, really good restaurant over here, or, you know, take Subway and get in there, you know, they'll, they'll, it's like, I'm a, like, holy smoke, you really know this city, you know, that's what it is for these kids up there. They know every rock, you know, so you get a really good sense of what that looks like. So anyway, they're up for, they're up there for um, a week at a time. They do crew A and B for every day of that week. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that way they don't get burned out as bad, you know, because crew A can cook crew B dinner. And crew A uh, doesn't have to wait around for breakfast. They stuff it in their saddlebags. They make something the night before and they're gone. Crew B then just comes in, takes care of horses. Crew A has already gone to bed. They take care of the dishes and they're in bed by midnight, you know they don't got to get going until the next day at 10 in the morning crew a's gone they're sleeping already their tents are a little further away and they got to wake up at 4 30 and get going you know so anyway that's what kind of what it looks like usually a lot of times you got to ride in horseback to camp uh you can take a stock trailer up there a ways um but a lot of times you're so far in the middle of nowhere that's horseback to get to camp so you Tie your gear, your food on the back of a horse, and off you go horseback to get to camp. So camp is just a series of canvas tents um, up there in the middle of nowhere. As far as water, um, you know, after we stopped grazing these creeks, because the habitat, Carol and I, you know, she's a riparian ecologist, my wife. Um, she was like, can we do something to never graze these creeks again and so we stopped we stopped grazing them because we have full control over cattle so you got 55 miles of creek up there and cole you can walk up to any of those creeks and you can cup your hands and drink at them they're that clean now used to be they, they had shit in them they had you know all kinds of debris in them from cows the banks were cut that's all healed you can drink out of dang creeks now and um so that's what we drink we drink out of the creeks we don't filter the water we don't purify it just drink out of the creeks drink out of springs so we usually put camp near one of them where we can drink and where the horses can drink and where the cattle can drink so water is kind of governing influence on where we put those camps you know we just got to have good good spring flow or good creek flow you know so 
But you guys don't just do beef either on your website. You guys have lamb, pork, salmon, dairy, all of it. So it, do you raise all that yourself as well? Or how does that, how is all that? So the salmon is a friend of mine who uh, fishes in Alaska and Bristol Bay. And at first <laughs> he was like, what relationship do we have? And I said, actually, we're very closely related. And he said, why? I said, because you're salmon. They're all wild fish in the wild open ocean of Bristol Bay in the North North Pacific and the Bering Sea. It's the wildest um, sockeye migration on Earth. Okay, they don't use hatchery fish at all. A lot of hatchery fish are in uh, the Copper River uh, fishery. They have a lot of hatchery fish in that fishery. These are all 100% wild fish. They've actually spawned in the rivers. And... Um, so, and he said, well, what's that got to do with you guys? And I told him how we run our cattle. And he said, you basically have wild animals. You're basically running wild animals up there. Because you're not putting them in feedlot. You're not farming them. You're not feeding them corn. You got wild animals. He said, I get it now. Wild salmon, wild beef. And I said, that's exactly why it's a pairing. So we got together. It was about four years ago now. So we do that. So that's the salmon. And then the lamb, yeah, we raise. It's 100% organic grass-fed lamb. And then the pigs, um, my son-in-law raises, and my daughter, they're on the other side of the ranch. Um, they pasture their pigs out there. And so there's they're 100% pasture pigs. They're on pasture their whole lives. But um, pigs don't do well unless they have a nice energy flow. So we have a friend of ours that grows wheat here in the valley. He buys wheat grain from him and grinds it feeds that to the pigs. So they their diet is about 50-50, 50 of this local wheat and 50% grazing um, our pastures. So that's the pigs. And they are dang good. I mean, they call us the best bacon I've ever had. Um, we're almost sold out. They, they really fly out of here. Um, same with the lamb. We're almost sold out of the lamb for the season. And then um, the dairy, there's a sheep dairy down the road from us, a friend of ours, and he runs a raw milk sheep dairy down there. And I tried his cheese and I loved it. It just was so good. And um, a lot of people who are lactose intolerant or stuff, um, stuff like that, can't handle like cow dairy, but they can eat sheep dairy all day long. So a lot of the people who buy from us, Cole, you know, a lot of people buy for the steaks because they say, you know, our steaks are the best they've ever had. But a lot of people just buy for pure sustenance. And I would say about half my customers are sick. They've had cancer. They got autoimmune disease. They got something wrong with them that when they got on our beef, it corrected it. And I think it's just, it, it isn't something that I intentionally did. It's just, it's, yeah, I think it's the way that God made it because. They're up in those mountains. There's 2,200. My wife knows this because she knows these plants. There's 2,200 different plants up on those mountains. Most people I know in this country who raise grass-fed beef are on like five different plants. Five. They're going up there eating hundreds and hundreds of different plants a day. Okay. So I got this friend of mine. He became a friend, but he started studying our beef 
before we became friends because he asked me to send him samples. So all told, I've sent him about 100 samples now, all from cattle up there on the range. And he's identified about 900 different compounds in our beef. And Cole, what's fascinating about it is they're all plant compounds. They're not, they're not like beef compounds. They're plant compounds. These are plant compounds. And I think the way you and I, our ancestors, you know, no matter where you are from the world, I don't care where you're from, but we all ate, you know, in prehistory before the development of food and farms and all this stuff, we all ate wild food. So our genome is actually really closely connected in design, you know, through adaptation. And we've evolved along the way with the plants we're eating and our genome changed to be maximized on those plants. That's where health came from for us. And I think that's what we've lost our way on with food in this country. We've simplified these things down to monocultures, corn, soybeans, wheat, barley, you know, and we eat these very, very simple foods. <laughs> it just have no nutritional diversity to them, you know. So all these people, they start eating this, this beef. It's got all these, guess what? It's got plant chemicals in it. Not, you know, it's, yeah, it's got taurine. It's got, you know, omega-3 fatty acids instead of omega-6 fatty acids, which are really good cancer-fighting omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-6s can be the things that cause heart disease and all these things. But anyway, our beef tipped the balance the other way. Feedlot beef goes omega-6 higher. Our beef goes omega-3 higher, just like wild salmon. And it's because they're eating all this wild material up there. They're eating all these different plants. So anyway, that's why I think it's it's resonant. You know, it, it's it causes our nutritional resonance and health for people who are sick. So um, <laughs> we've been seeing it. Like we had a little cat with distemper. Um, we have a bunch of cats around because um, we don't put out rodent poison or anything like that. So you know, we got one or two house cats. Um, but this one little kitty got distemper real bad, and uh, and my wife likes him. And she said, well, we're just going to feed him our beef. You know, most people try to doctor for distemper. Most most animals die from distemper and parvo, you know, for dogs. She just put him on her beef. She said, we're going to give him a little bit of beef every day, and we'll see how he does. Anyway. Fantastic. <laughs> she saved three or four cats this way that had distemper. You know, distemper usually wipes them out. So I think what's happening is they're getting all those chemicals, you know, that are critical for health. And we're missing it in Costco burger. We're missing it in Walmart burger. Okay. We're missing it in like Burger King burger. It's because we've dumbed down. The nutritional plane on these cows so bad by taking away their ability to choose what they should eat. A friend of mine really nailed it one day. And it's this Dr. Fred Provenza. He's become a pretty close friend. He's been out on the ranch a couple of times. We're up on the range. He he knows all these range plants. He's a wildland nutritionist. He he's studied like wild animals and their nutrition for his entire life. And he's, you know, he's written books, he's published hundreds of times and and he's such an easy guy to get along with i, I wish we could spend some time with Cole. he's fascinating um 
But anyway, we're up there and we're looking at this one steer who's grazing right by us up there on the range on the side of a mountain. And he said, look at what he's eating. And I said, well, what's that? He said, well, he's eating yarrow. And I said, yeah, they eat a lot of yarrow. He said, do they? I said, yeah, they eat a lot of yarrow. <laughs> and he said, take a look at his back with me. And I said, yeah, what about it? He said, he's got no flies on. And, and you know, most cattle in America are covered with flies, you know. So that's why we use insecticide fly tag. We don't, but that's why most people in cattle, the cattle business use insecticide fly tags that rub this insecticide all over them. And uh, back before we were organic, I tried fly tags and cold. There was one time I couldn't sleep all night because my head was pounding all night. And it's because we were using organophosphate fly tags, which real common pesticide ear tag. And it kills flies like crazy, but it was killing me. I mean, I got really sick for a few days from anyway, that ended that, you know, after that we became organic and it's like, I don't ever want to go back. I have been poisoned by, I used to work in conventional agriculture all the time. And in fact, I'm, I'm writing a story for my blog, just about this. Um, you know, it was a little bit of a rabbit trail. My legs were on fire from the chemical burns. Even worse, my eyes stung and tears that rolled out and fogged my vision. I squinted, straining and see the end of the field, but couldn't quite make it out. The five-gallon bucket I was carrying was almost empty. I wonder how many more of the 40-pound pails are waiting for me at the end of the cornfield. Despite the burn and the midday sun on my shoulders, there was rain in the forecast, and my boss, Paul, had left me to scatter a side dressing of ammonium nitrate fertilizer in one of his remote sweet corn fields that served up the homegrown goodness to the distant citizens of New York City. I was sick all the time from this crap. You know, people are like, why are you such an organic whack job? You know, and it's because I've had enough. I'm up to here with it, Cole. I've been around all the conventional crap, and it's wrong. It's wrong for our health. It's wrong for the animal cells. It's wrong for the land health. There's nothing good about it. It's it's toxic. It, we we've gotten a toxic agriculture. I just read an article about a friend of mine who relayed this to me. He it didn't happen to him, but a friend of his was putting corn in the ground and almost burned himself to death completely by accident by getting anhydrous poison. The anhydrous line blew off. Anhydrous is, um, is it looks like a propane tank on wheels. You inject it in the ground with your corn seed. You know, it's like injected fertilizer. You're injecting anhydrous ammonium nitrate in the ground there and fertilizing the ground. Anyway, this stuff is so toxic that if that hose comes off and hits you, it could kill you in minutes. Okay, this guy's almost dead. He manages to crawl on his belly all the way back to the house. He's just getting over it. And I'm like, what the crap are we doing where farmers get burned because they're growing corn from a toxic? You know, it's weird. The, the whole thing is so weird to me. You know, it's. But anyway, so that's why we're sick. That's why these people are sick. But anyway, they get our beef in them. And they start coming around. So that's our customer base. That's that's where all that comes from. And, you know, it's just exciting to see them recover. That way, you know, I, I mean, we, we charge a ton for our ribeyes. Even our ground beef is expensive, but we've had um, people call us and say, you know what? I only need to eat a half the beef that we used to, even though I want to eat more because it's so good. I'm full. 
after half the beef I used to eat from Walmart or from Costco, you know, because this is nutritionally dense. And my body says, you've satisfied it. I'm good. You know, and I think we've lost attention to paying, paying attention to our bodies and saying what's enough or what's not. It's why we eat Doritos, right? It's called the Dorito effect. It's got all these, these flavor compounds in there that keep tricking our body. It feels satisfying when it hits our tongue, but we're not getting nutrition. So our body is saying, you need to eat more. <laughs> That's good. You're going down the right road. Nutritionally, that tastes right. But your body gets disappointed when it goes down into your gut and says, wait, 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 wait. Everything I was told that was in that stuff you're eating doesn't exist. And so, but your palate says, oh, should eat more. So that's why we get obese on all this crazy, stupid food. It's because of food additives and flavorings that they're trying to trick our bodies with, you know. So to sum it all up, Cole, the world's messed up and it's okay. You know, I, I don't get hopeless. I'm actually full of hope because there's another way and it's better, you know, and it's fun. It, it, you know, agriculture's fun. I just went to a grazing meeting or a uh, cattleman's meeting the other night and everybody in there is mad. You know, there's 60 cattlemen in this room with me and they're mad. And my kids are like, why was everybody mad in your dad? And they're mad because they're losing their crap, man. They can't make it. It's frustrating. It's hard work. And they're not making jack did. You know, they're not making any money. You know, I mean, it's fun when you make money. It starts to get fun again. So what? what's like, what would you say is your best seller? Like, what would you highly recommend if somebody were to buy something off of the website? Oh, I would just buy the ground beef, Cole. I mean, <laughs> you know, I know that sounds crazy. I'd buy the fatty ground beef. You know. And people are like, wait, 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 the fatty ground. And you'll see this is the stupidest thing in the world. Um, when people realized that our fat was actually heart healthy for you, they started saying, send me fatty. I want only the fat. So anyway, <laughs> what's stupid is that we started selling out of all the fatty beef. And so I had to raise the price to try to have it flow out at the same rate. The other stuff's got a lot of fat in it too. It's 85.15. But um, man, the ground beef, it's just, you know, if you like a burger, it's the best dang burger you'll ever eat. I mean, it is the best dang burger you'll ever eat. And it's because, you know what? I eat a lot of burgers and a lot. sometimes when I, I don't travel a lot, but once a month I got to go to a conference or something like that and I'll eat a burger there. And it's like, wow. I mean, Cole, when, when have you last been in a supermarket? When, when yes. today, yesterday? Yesterday. Okay, yesterday. Okay. So get in your mind's eye and think about that supermarket. And, you know, one thing I've really noticed about supermarkets lately is that, you know, maybe you're in a Kroger, okay? Maybe it's a Wegmans. You're in one of those two stores. And you go down those aisles, and maybe it's aisle 13 in this store, but half of aisle 13 is steak sauce and condiments. Okay, stuff you put with meat. Okay, why the crap are we doing this? What, what, what happened to America 
that we got to flavor our food so much. And I would submit to you either the beef doesn't taste like anything because there's no, there's no plant chemicals in there. There's no compounds to make it interesting. Okay. Or number two, it tastes bad. And I've had a lot of bad. Okay. I go to a restaurant when I'm traveling and it's like, holy cow, that burger was actually really bad, you know? And you put the A1 all over it, trying to mitigate it, but it's still not enough because it's like, whoa, you know, and then you maybe don't eat all of it because your body's saying, don't eat all that burger because you're going to get sick and throw up tonight. Um, or maybe you're just going to feel indigestion all night, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, the ribeyes, fantastic, best steak out there. Okay. But Cole, I don't know. Maybe you're wealthy. I can't afford to eat them. And I own the steaks. I can't afford to eat them because, you know, I can sell. The girls and I posted this week's inventory. We we kill every two weeks. We harvest beef every two weeks. So we harvest 15 head of beef, fat cattle, every two weeks, all the way through the year. We sell out everything every two weeks. All the 15 head are gone. 100%. Freezer's empty. 350 cases of beef, six tons, Cole, six tons of meat go every two weeks in boxes all across America. We put it in. I'm the one who actually sorts your order for you. Um, but <laughs> And don't get me wrong. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying this is a movement in America where people are actually desperate for good food. They're desperate. Anyway, so those ribeyes that I was telling you about, Cole, you know, it's still a hand-to-mouth existence in agriculture. Don't get me wrong. I'm not getting rich off this. You know, I got a huge mortgage. I got this gigantic ranch mortgage. But we're able to cash flow, you know? We're able to cash flow, and we're able to buy, you know, I bought a Toyota um, Sequoia just a couple months ago. It's a, it's a, it's a 2008. And it's like one of the newest cars we've ever had. You know, it's almost 20 years. 20 years old but it's a solid car you know and i got a i got a friend who runs a junkyard and he put it back together for me i only have to give six grand for it you know but that's the kind of vehicles we drive we, we don't have any trappings of money on us because like i talked about you know we're pouring the money on the land you know or you know maybe we'll buy some more cows or something like that so you know you're always so anyway the ribeyes are gone we posted them last night at 10 p.m okay they're gone all this week's ribeyes are gone. Cole, you know how much a stupid ribeye sells for? Have you looked? I can't remember off the top of my head. Okay, they're between sixty and hundred bucks. Okay, one steak. Okay, and they are gone in a matter of hours. And it's because people get turned on to them who got money. I mean, like I said, I can never do this, but they get turned on to them. They got money, and they're like, "This is the best." dang ribeye i have ever eaten in my life and plus i feel good after i ate it i got people who write me online that say oh my gosh i ate one of your ribeyes for lunch usually if i eat a one pound ribeye for lunch i feel sick and i feel like i gotta go to bed you know what these people are they're energized and ready to tackle the rest of the day because it's what their body's been eating. And I'm not giving you some foo-foo BS here. I'm <laughs> I'm telling you the God's on the truth. And I don't need to sell ribeyes, so don't tell them to sell ribeyes. They're sold out. Okay, I guarantee right now if they look, they're they're gone. 
you know, maybe there's a few left of the leaner ones, but all the fatty, nice ones are gone. They're history, you know, so buy the ground beef. But here's the crazy thing about ground beef, Cole. I took a picture, you know, it was, you know, on my phone. I could show it to you if I had time with, <laughs> with my kids. And with like three of my ranch hands, we're sitting in front of our fulfillment shop where we pack all these boxes to send out. And we're holding together a one-pound pack of ground beef. This never happened to me. I've done this for 30 years. It's the last pound. I have never. Now we sell out ground beef every week. You know, literally tons of ground beef sell out every week. And people can't get enough. And I think, you know, that's where we need to be with food. When you got nutrition density in food and people can actually eat less, you know, and find out that, oh my gosh, I don't even need that much because I'm satisfied. I'm sat finding satisfaction. Instead of freaking Doritos or going to McDonald's and eating or French fries, they all have flavor adjustments in them that are that are put together by PhDs and lab coats who know how human taste and flavoring works. I guarantee you, they're there's books about it. A friend of mine, uh, Mark Chasker, wrote one called The Dorito Effect. If you're if your people read it all, have them read that book because it's an eye-opener how toxic the flavoring industry is and how they have adjusted the flavor of food to dupe us into eating more of it while we're seeking for nutrition, you know. Anyway, fascinating stuff. And, you know, it's by the ground beef. Crap, you know, we got all kinds of stuff on there. You know, the salmon is super duper. Um, the steaks are fantastic. I'm very happy. You know, one thing are they are mushy tender. I've I've eaten, you know, commercial steaks that are mushy tender. It's like I don't need to eat my steak with a spoon. I actually like a steak that has something I can sink my teeth into. You know what I mean? I mean, that's weird to me. Like Wagyu beef, I got no interest in it. And um, so the steaks are good, but we got all kinds of sausages. There's everything, hot dogs, fish, um, cheeses, um, you know, anything can ask for from the cows there. Bones, oxtails. Um, there's, oh, <laughs> one thing that really has taken off that I had no idea it would. But we got this uh, package. It's a 12-ounce package of ground. And uh, we had to come up with a name. And it's called Wild Hunter Blend. Wild Hunter Blend. And um, we started it because of our dogs. And um, we give our dogs kibble, but they also get this every day. They get some Wild Hunter Blend and they eat kibble because it's whatever. You know, I mean, it, it's just they get bored and they'll eat because they're bored. But their real nutrition comes from Wild Hunter. So the Wild Hunter has got liver in it, kidney and hard along with ground beef we sell out of crap every week i mean people <laughs> I, I gotta tell you this um people it's for the dogs and cats right but people eat it too because they're looking for that organ meat and i get a lot of people that just buy it for themselves they'll buy 50 pounds of it for themselves and it's 100 human grade it's not pet food it's 100 human grade you know, it's our beef, it's our livers, it's not weird stuff that we buy. It's certified organic. It's it's our stuff. So it's 100% human grade. Anyway, I got a friend of mine from New York City, 
and him and his wife uh, worked together in downtown. And they were going to get on the subway. And he said, this weird thing happened to me on the way to the subway clan. And I said, what do you got? And he's talking to me on the phone. He said, well, okay, let me just give you some backstory. Because you sent us that beef last week. And my wife makes a spaghetti that night, the night before. Incredible. Okay, incredible. Incredible sauce, full of your meat. Said it was like the best spaghetti sauce I've ever had. So he said, you know, we're feeding it to kids. We're eating it, loving life. And he said, I take out the trash and I find out she accidentally fed us all wild hunter in spaghetti sauce. I said, yeah, so what's the big deal, Mike? And he said, well, you know, I thought that was like for your dogs. I said, well, yeah, I, most people do feed their dogs because their dogs need all those critical. By the way, dogs don't eat sweet potatoes. They don't eat corn. They don't eat rice. All that is BS in dogs. It should not even be there. It has no business. I, I, we have eight dogs. They've never eaten a sweet potato. They've never eaten rice. They've never, they, they don't eat that. They eat bones and beef. That's what they eat. That's what dogs are making. Wolves up there, you think they're going around? You know, downtown to the to the grocery store and say, I think I really need some sweet potatoes right now and maybe some carrots. You know, that's just total BS marketing stuff that it's in dog food. It's got no business in dog food. Dog food, top of the food chain predator. That's what they eat. Okay. Some of it's pretty rotted. It's been laying around for a while. When they find it, still, they're predisposed for it. That's what they should be eating. Anyway, he said, yeah, Glenn, this is like dog food. And he said, you know, what struck me and what made me call you is my wife and I are on the way to the subway. And we're walking down the sidewalk in Brooklyn. And he said, something happened that really stuck in my mind. And it wasn't until I got off the train here in downtown Manhattan. I wanted to call you and just see if this thing happens often. I said, what do you got? He said, Glenn, every time my wife passed a fire hydrant, she sniffed it. <laughs> what is that? He said, does that happen to you guys? I said, take care, Mike. Have a good day. <laughs> uh, I like it. Glenn, I really appreciate it. Appreciate you coming on. Um, it was a honestly a giant learning experience just to be able to hear, you know, the the things that you do and just take Good it. You, know, you can read about it online and everything, but it's just a whole different level to actually have a conversation with you. And I truly do appreciate nice. it. You bet. Good deal. All right. Um, well, uh, it's just, you know, I love like you. I just love to visit with people. And, um, you know, and also I just love to share that there's hope. There's hope in agriculture, but we got to embrace it. You and I do as the eaters of food. If we just keep eating the crap, for one thing, we're going to suffer, but agriculture is going to suffer too because it's continuance. We're going to keep put up, putting up with the crap, you know? So anyway, I mean, for me, it's, it's cool because I get to share the truth and, you know, where there's hope in agriculture when we hear that there's no, no hope. But with that, that is a wrap on yet another episode of the Roughnecks podcast. Go and try some of the meat. I will have the episode or the website in the episode description if you want to try that yourself. But until Wednesday, 
where we will be back with another episode of Reno's Rants. You guys know the deal. Life is hard and is going to knock you down just like a bull does to a bull rider. Don't let that bull of life walk all over you. Get up, grab the bull by the horns, and take control of your life. Roughnecks, out. <laughs>